that time of year yet again, everybody. What's going on? Welcome to the gray area. My name is Grayson Singleton, and coming up on today's show, you have never said Carmelo Anthony and Mike Gundy in the same sentence until today. Plus, I'm going to make the case for why this one Western Conference team can make an NBA Finals run, and it's not the Lakers. This is a great time to be alive. Um, Halloween is this coming weekend. Oklahoma State homecoming is going to be really cool. I get to call the homecoming game. That'll be fun. And it's World Series time. And that's where we're going to start today. The World Series begins on Tuesday. Depending on when you are listening to this, it may be that day. But it begins Tuesday the 26th. It's the Houston Astros and the Atlanta Braves. And I'm going to say right off the top that I am disappointed that it is not the Houston Astros and the Los Angeles Dodgers. I would have liked to see a rematch, but I am glad that the Houston Astros are in it. And this is the first time that the Houston Astros have been in the World Series since the whole cheating, trash can, fiasco, buzzer kind of thing. And look, I've always believed the Houston Astros, since probably 2015, are a legitimate team. However, it's easy to hit a ball particularly from a guy like a Rolls Chapman who throws 100 miles an hour, it's easier to hit the ball when you know what's coming and where the pitch is going to be. And this is the first year that we are going to see the Houston Astros, presumably, in the World Series without cheating. And there's a lot of credit to go around this Houston Astros organization. Dusty Baker, we all know, has been a phenomenal manager for years upon years. And now he's going to be the sixth manager ever to take a team from both leagues, the American and the National League, to the World Series, and he's the first manager of color to accomplish that feat as well. So major props to him, major props to Houston for reconstructing their outfield after George Springer left. You know, bringing in Michael Brantley, Kyle Tucker, and, and others back there to sort of replace him. The Astros, they finally got healthy. You know, they got Brigman back toward the stretch, the back stretch of, of the season. And this infield, man. The Astros, to me, the reason why the Astros win a lot of ball games, and almost why they lost in the in the championship series, is because they play very solid defense in the in, in the middle infield. And in an era where it's either home run or guys pulling the ball, there's a lot of stress on the middle infield, you know, pulling the ball on the ground. And, you know, when you saw the Astros struggle during the championship series and even the divisional series as well, it was when guys like Jose Altuve were making uncharacteristic mistakes in the middle infield. Now, Jose Altuve is not a great defender. As a matter of fact, you know, just because of the reputation of the name Jose Altuve, we kind of associate him as that second baseman with great defense. He's almost like Derek Jeter a little bit in that he's good defensively, but he is vastly overrated defensively. The real MVP here to me, aside from Jordan Alvarez, because we, you don't have to, you don't really have to be a baseball genius to know that Jordan Alvarez is just an animal. The real MVP here is Carlos Correa, and throughout the entire saga, remember Carlos Correa was the guy who was most apologetic when the story broke that the Houston Astros, there was proof that they had pretty much cheated their way to the World Series. He was the most sincere in his apology, and he's been the Astro that most people have 
that's just been the easiest for most people to root for over these last few tumultuous years in Houston. And, you know, he and he's put on a show this postseason. You, t- you talk about in the championship series with the watch, his defense, his timely hits. Every time Carlos Correa comes up in a big spot, I think he's had a timely hit. And that is of the utmost importance. And it's going to be very important when they go up against the Atlanta Braves starting on Tuesday night. And here's the big difference between the Atlanta Braves and who the Astros faced in the AL Championship Series in the Boston Red Sox. Atlanta's healthy. Atlanta is fully healthy. And when you have a pitching staff, an entire pitching staff, that is completely healthy, remember what we say in the World Series, bullpens win. We've been talking about this ever since the Madison Bumgarner year. Bullpens and how bullpens are managed win games. And I can argue that nobody has managed a bullpen and a pitching staff better than Brian Snicker out there in Atlanta. And real quick, while we're on the topic of coaches, shout out to Ron Washington, the third base coach for Atlanta, for making it back to the World Series. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm from the Dallas area, so I remember the years when Ron, when Ron Washington was managing the Texas Rangers during those two years they made the World Series. And should have won one had it not been for Nelson Cruz, but no need to dig up old wounds there. But you have a three-horse pitching staff in the starting rotation with Max Fried, Charlie Morton, and Ian Anderson, all of whom are phenomenal starters. The bullpen for Atlanta, even though Atlanta only won 88 games, which is why they've flown under the radar for most of this season, there's something to say about about their bullpen. And it's the the reliability of it is what's crazy. You have Jesse Chavez, who has not given up an earned run this postseason. A.J. Minter, not giving up a run this postseason. Will Smith, who has long been known as a more than quality reliever, not giving up a run. Tyler Madzik, a 1.74 ERA in the, in the postseason. Ian Anderson has come off the bench as well, as well as in addition to his assignment in the starting rotation, 225 ERA. This Braves team is hard to score on, and they're going to be hard to score on because of their pitching, and they also play great defense. I can make an argument that Austin Riley should be a gold glove third baseman this year in the National League. I really could. I can make the case that Freddie Freeman is a gold glove first baseman in the National League. And there, and another credit to Brian Snicker's performance as the manager for the Atlanta Braves. The TBS during the championship series when the Braves knocked off the Dodgers, they showed a graphic of their starting outfield, Atlanta's, on opening day, and what it is today as we enter the World Series. And I've. N- in my years of cognizantly watching baseball as, you know, a media personality like what I am now, I have never seen such a transition. They had guys like, you know, um, Marcelo Zuna and a whole other set of outfielders. And now you have guys like Jock Peterson, who was acquired from the Cubs in the, mid- in, in the middle of the season. Rosario plays a lot of, a lot of left field. Adam Duvall is in there, and they've just mixed and matched this into this perfect combination 
that has gotten Atlanta <laughs> to the to the World Series. And we haven't even talked about, you know, your Aussie Albises and your your Ronald Acuna Juniors. I mean, this 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 is this is this is insane. It is really remarkable what Atlanta's gone through to get to this point because you had to worry about Ian Anderson coming back from an, from injury. He didn't start the season completely completely healthy. Then you had the whole situation again with 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 Marcelo Zuna, obviously, and I, I just mentioned Ronald Acuna. He still has not played this postseason because of an injury. I, I forgot about that. Um, there's just been so much that Atlanta, in terms of turmoil, has gone through. I believe at one point they weren't even expected to make the playoffs because the Phillies were on such a roll, and the Phillies were one of the teams at the beginning of the season that I thought could make some real noise. In the in the NL East with their new manager Joe Girardi, <clears throat> guy a guy who I'm very familiar with, with his time with the Yankees. So it's been it's been cool to see Atlanta go through this season and sort of and make and definitely exceed expectations and make the World Series. Now, do I think they will win the World Series? No, no, I don't. Houston, by far and away, is the best team in this series and over the course of the season was always one of the top four teams in major league baseball because everything I just talked about with Atlanta Houston has particularly if Luis Garcia and from Valdez in the starting lineup in the starting rotation excuse me can duplicate games like they had in the in the CS against Boston particularly Luis Garcia you know, five and two thirds of one hit ball carried a carried a no hitter almost through six innings. If they replicate that, Houston's offense will not stay dormant for very long. And I think they can. I think Houston has the horses, and then you throw, you know, you're going to throw Zach Grinky in there to be, you know, the what whatever. Zach Grinky is at this point, Mr. 65-mile-an-hour curveball himself, just to be something to throw everybody off. Houston, they do, they change, they can morph, particularly on who their pitcher is day-to-day. They can, they can morph in approach and in playing style. And that's insane when it comes to a baseball team that they just don't look the same from game one to game four. They just don't. Now, the, the question for Houston is, what, what happens with Lance McCullers? Is Lance McCullers on this, on this World Series roster? Because he is the team leader still, in terms of starters. Actually, no, that, that's Luis Garcia now. But Lance McCullers has a .84 ERA in the postseason. So he, it'll be imperative that he comes back. But what else is also imperative before I, before I switch gears to the Lakers? is Jake Odorizzi. And I think Jake Odorizzi has to be the starting pitcher that gives Dusty Baker a lot of innings because there's a lot of guys on this team that you can mix and match to piece to, and piece together in a certain combination to win you a game. But you have to have one starting pitcher, at least one, preferably two or three, that can eat up innings, that can get you through five, that can get you through six, and save your bullpen for when you need it in a possible game six and game seven. 
So I think Jake Odorizzi is a big X factor here, but my prediction, I think Houston wins, and I think Houston wins this in no more than six. Probably five. I just think they're that much better than the Atlanta Braves. But Atlanta Braves, they have three starting pitchers that can get you five or six innings in quality starts. Anderson, Freed, and Morton. Houston has two guys that are unproven, Valdez and Garcia. We need to see it again. But they have a guy at Odorizzi that can do it as well. And we'll see whatever happens, how they utilize Zach Greinke, who in the postseason has only thrown in two and a third innings. So interesting World Series coming up. Let me switch gears to this. The Lakers I talked about last week are the oldest team, not just in the NBA this year, but are the oldest team in NBA history. Their average age is 30.8. And they can likely win an NBA Finals if this whole thing with Russell Westbrook works out. It has nothing to do with their coach. It has nothing to do with their depth. There is something about the Lakers, and I was watching their game against Memphis last night, and I saw Carmelo Anthony drop 28. I saw Russell Westbrook hitting perimeter jump shots. I saw LeBron James hitting perimeter jump shots. This is what's going to keep the Lakers in the finals hunt this season, is their willingness to adapt. And we saw as it came you know, to the end of Carmelo Anthony in stops like Houston and in stops like New York, before he really settled with Portland for a couple of years. Carmelo Anthony and his playing style was archaic. It was ancient. And it just wasn't working in this era of NBA basketball. And we were starting to think that the time had come that Carmelo Anthony was no longer going to be an NFL, an NBA player or even one that we make mention of. Lo and behold, Carmelo Anthony is knocking down threes at an efficient clip and at a consistent one as well. And because of it, he is now eighth on the NBA's all-time scoring list. And part of the, part of the scoring list and moving up, up that far, when you look at the guys who, who are at the top of the scoring list, guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Carl Malone, and Kobe Bryant, to name the top, to name the top three, Each of those guys played for 20 years in the NBA. Each of them. And so longevity is a big part of the greatness of an NBA player. That is why I will not dismiss the argument that LeBron James is better better in terms of greatest of all time. I will not dismiss the argument that LeBron James is greater than Michael Jordan. Because LeBron James did it longer. The peak of his career lasted longer than Michael Jordan, and he is still a perennial all-star 18 years into the league. Not to mention that Michael Jordan retired for a couple of years as well. Now, there were other circumstances that had nothing to do with the physical with that. I understand that. And I'm not here, I'm not here today saying that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. I'm just saying I will not dismiss that argument because of the longevity and the prolonged dominance of LeBron James. Now, let's get back to the Los Angeles Lakers. Outside shooting has never been part of the game of LeBron James up until a few a few years ago. Russell Westbrook, also not a great shooter, but he was knocking down shots last night against the Memphis Grizzlies. 
And this and what's going to keep the Lakers afloat in the Western Conference and a Western Conference that is getting very, very good is that they is that their three guys, LeBron, Russ, and Carmelo Anthony, three guys whose playing styles are perfect for the year 2011, have, are adapting it to be able to maintain greatness in 2021 and 2022. Because LeBron has to, LeBron understands that he has to learn how to shoot outside so he can stop taking all of the body blows and putting the toll on his seven on his 37-year-old body that he's been doing. Russell Westbrook has to learn how to shoot so they can space the floor so Anthony Davis can work on the inside, as well as guys like Dwight Howard and DeAndre Jordan. And Carmelo Anthony has to learn how to shoot from the outside, again, to also space the floor. But also, he's getting older. Those turnaround mid-range shots are not going to be there every single night, even though he can still hit them. And Carmelo Anthony is still a bona fide scorer. Certified at that. Carmelo Anthony can still score the basketball. But we all know he's not as athletic as he used to be. You can see it when he tries to dunk the basketball. He's not, he, he's, he's not fast anymore. But he's playing defense. He's making himself valuable. And that's the thing about maintaining success in a league is adaptability. You've got to be able to do, if, if one thing goes out, you've got to be able to do something else. And LeBron James knows he won't be able to dunk over everybody forever, even though it seems like he will be. So he's getting an outside shot. As LeBron James is getting older, he's not, for some reason, he's not getting a lot of calls these days. I mean, I feel like he gets hit on the head every time he goes to the, to the rim. He has become a better shooter. He obviously has been a great distributor throughout the course of his entire career. He's getting even better at that. And he's learning to play occasionally second fiddle to Anthony Davis. That is something we saw a lot of last season. And now I think we'll see more of this season because that's what needs to happen because Anthony Davis is still in his mid-20s while LeBron James is pushing 40. And even though the Lakers, they, they just got their first win of the season on Sunday night against Memphis, but there are a lot of good characteristics that I see with this Lakers team. Now, am I still concerned long-term that having Russell Westbrook in there will shrink the floor and not allow Anthony Davis to work as great? I think that's still a high possibility. But I think if the Lakers can play good defense and make sure they are in the transition game for most of, for a lot a, a good enough portion of the game, oh, this Lakers team, you're the, the, that's this is a team that's hard to beat. Because Russell Westbrook in a transition game, LeBron James in a transition game, with Carmelo sitting up there in the corner on the wing with the, the certified shooter that he is and that he has become, I think, I, think that's, I think that is, you know, that's a team that can make some noise in terms of getting to the NBA Finals. Now, there are a few teams that I would pick above the Lakers to make the NBA Finals. The Clippers are one of them particularly once Kawhi Leonard comes back. And that's going to hinge upon whether or not Kawhi Leonard comes back and what Kawhi Leonard looks like when he comes back because there's a wide spectrum 
of which we can see Kawhi Leonard. Even though he has a partially torn ACL, there's a good chance we don't see him for the rest of the year. You know, Denver is young, spry, and on the come-up. I love the ascension of Michael Porter Jr. The Golden State Warriors are no joke. You know, Dallas might be able to make some noise. I'm just not, I'm really not high on Dallas, but who knows? I mean, they still have a top five player in the NBA, in my opinion, Luka. So the Lakers, they have a gauntlet to get through in terms of to get to the Western Com- the Conference Finals and represent the Western Conference in the NBA Finals. But there are veterans, there are older players that really kick up the age of this team, the average age of this team. Those guys are doing the right things to keep this team viable in the NBA Finals. And adaptability, particularly with Carmelo Anthony, is a beautiful thing to watch. And that is going to be a requisite tool for the Lakers to get into the NBA Finals. And the adaptability of Carmelo Anthony is not something you see in Mike Gundy. And I told you you've never said those two names in the same sentence, and I just did. Today is not a good day to be an Oklahoma State football fan. It's really not. Because everything we knew that was going to happen was going to happen. And it did against Iowa State in Ames this weekend. So the Cowboys lost 24-21. to The undefeated season is gone. Oklahoma State is now dropped from 8 to 15 in the AP rankings. You know, you're still a top 15 team. You still have a chance of being in the Big 12 championship. Still have a chance of winning a Big 12 championship. But every single concerning thing about the way Mike Gundy runs this team came to fruition against the Cyclones. And it's what cost them the game. Because as Carmelo Anthony has adapted his game to the evolving nature of the NBA from his glory days of the early 2010s to the early 2020s, Mike Gundy has done the complete opposite. When you watch Oklahoma State, you think you are watching a football team from 2012. It is predictable. It is vanilla. It is boring. It is easy to game plan for. There were three instances where the four, four really, where Mike Gundy, I believe, lost the game for Oklahoma State this weekend. The first, you are at the, you are around the forty-five yard line in the second quarter, I believe is what it, is what it was. Or actually, no, the the uh, the thirty-five yard line. You're really in the middle of no man's land here, is what um, one of my friends likes to call it. Call it no man's land. It is fourth, and I believe it's four. You're far enough away from midfield, and your defense is playing well to where you're not particularly worried about giving the ball back to Iowa State in favorable field position, even though it's good field position. It's not amazing field position. Mike Gundy elects to go for a field goal, a 49-yard field goal, with the dude that's only played three games, and Tanner Brown. He misses the field goal. The second time. You are in the first first drive, as a matter of fact, first drive after the after halftime. Oklahoma State gets the ball back. It's 14 to 14. And 
Mike Gundy decides we're going to run three straight run plays. And you go three and out. On your first drive, on your first drive, the first half it ended with Oklahoma State scoring a touchdown to tie the game. They got a stop. And then they were, like, you could go take the lead. You run three straight run plays. And do you know how many people could predict that? Everybody I was watching the game with. It is insane how predictable Oklahoma State is on offense. It's, it's, it blows my mind how a Division I coach, and look, Casey Dunn is not devoid of culpability here. I understand that. But Casey Dunn is significantly younger than Mike Gundy. So I, so I have to believe Mike Gundy's hands are mostly in this. How in the world do you run three straight run plays, go three and out, and be okay with that? The momentum is all on Oklahoma's side. This is not a game where the defense has to rescue you because the offense was putting up numbers. You know, Spencer Sanders is just throwing a great ball to Brennan Presley, an amazing catch by Presley at that, to tie the game before the defense got the stop. And then you just do the most predictable thing on planet Earth. I don't, I don't understand this. So, that, so that's, that's the second thing. And number three, in the, later on in the quarter, in the third quarter, you're down, you're, it's fourth and a yard, really fourth and maybe less than a yard. And you send Tanner Brown back out there for a 30-yard field goal, which Tanner Brown misses wide to the right. And I said it at the time when I was in the living room of my friend's apartment watching that game. I said, if you cannot get less than a yard, you don't deserve to win the football game. And that goes for any football team ever. If you cannot get less than a yard to keep a drive going, you do not deserve to win the football game. And sure enough, Oklahoma State lost a game they deserve to lose. And here's the difference between the great coaches and just good coaches. There's a difference between playing to win and playing not to lose. And I think it is very obvious to anybody who watched the trajectory, the happening, and just the overall culmination of that game against Iowa State. It was obvious to anybody that Mike Gundy coached that game not to lose. There were no big swings. No going for it on fourth and four. No going for it on fourth and inches. Just conventional, old school wisdom. That backfired. Now, can you say if the kicker had made, if, if um, Tanner Brown had made a couple of field goals, that the outcome of the game would have been different? Obviously. My issue really isn't even with Tanner Brown today. I don't, I don't have an issue with Tanner Brown because on both of those field goal attempts I just named, I don't think Tanner Brown should have been out there. This is a, this is a guy, and I hate that we have to talk about, talk about this, and I hate that I have to talk about him like this a couple of days after he just got a perpetual five-year extension, which basically means that generation after generation of football players and students will have to see Mike Gundy coach Oklahoma State. And... We could be in the year 2030 and 2030, 2040, and Mike Gundy would still be coaching like this. Now, am I being a little facetious on that? Obviously, but it's 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 sad with the talent that this team has, with the offensive star power that they have, 
with the abilities of Spencer Sanders and the ability of Jalen Warren and the hands of Tay Martin, the shiftiness of Brennan Presley, Rashad Owens, Blaine Green, Bryson Green, those guys are up-and-coming great receivers. It is a shame that this offense is run out like it is. Not to mention you have the most dominant defense in the Big 12. And at this point, yes, the offensive line is a work in progress. It leaves a lot to be desired. I'm not going to put a whole lot of that on them. They, they, played a, they played a decent game against Iowa State. There were a couple holding penalties, by Cole, one by Cole Birmingham particularly that I remember, that really took the team out of drives. I understand that. But overall, it was not one of those awful games that we've become accustomed to seeing Oklahoma State play on the offensive line. There is a difference between playing to win and playing not to lose. And if you are on your own 30-yard line with a fourth and four, that, that's, that's one I am confident I will live and die, live or die, by going for that. Fourth and one in your own red zone, or in the opposing team's red zone, excuse me, you go for that. If you're in, the, if you're in your own red zone, I get it. But if you are at your own red zone on fourth and one, fourth and, fourth and less than one, you go for that. And if you can't get that, then your football team doesn't deserve to win the game. Now, obviously, I've not talked about the, the, the officials in, the last sp- in that last spot on the Brennan Presley play because I don't need to. We, we, we know Oklahoma State was royally screwed over on that play. I don't know how with the amount of cameras and replay and how it can be evident to every single person on TV or watching in their living room that has a remote understanding of what that yellow line is that Brennan Presley got that first down. We all know he did. But this game, to me, was lost way before that. The, it, and the question you have to leave yourself with today, the question you have to leave yourself is, why did it take so long for all this to come to fruition? With this style of coaching, how did Oklahoma State for, – for, forget, forget the three ranked wins in a row. Forget Kansas State, Baylor, and Texas – how did Oklahoma State get past Tulsa? And it's and it's a legit it's a legitimate question. How does how did this happen? What took so long? What perpetually takes so long for this coaching staff on the offensive side of the ball to get out of its own way? And you know why? And you know why the coaching staff decides not to take not to get out of its own way because everybody's cool with it. You see, everybody brings up the people that are staunch defenders of Mike Gundy. And look, I'm not here saying Mike Gundy is a scrub as a head coach. I'm just saying he refuses to innovate. It's a situation where obviously you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but the dog needs to learn new tricks. The reason why this works is because in college football, everybody brings up Mike Gundy's record as a college football coach. And records in college football are different than records in the, in the NFL. As a coach, Mike Gundy is 143 and 67 in 17 seasons. 15 consecutive bowl games. 
which is great. But in college football, you lose two games, you are officially out of the chase for the national championship. That's just how that works. The national champion, the national champion only loses one game maximum in a season. So losing 62, 67 games over 17 seasons is roughly three to is is a, is almost four losses per season. That's good enough to get you to a Cheez It Bowl every year. Occasionally, you know, get you to a Fiesta Bowl like they did in 2011. But I guess everybody over here is okay with mediocrity because going eight and four every year in the NFL that's a good that's a good ratio. Winning two thirds of your games. That is good at any professional level of sports. In college, in college sports, no. And this is an environment that sees Mike Gundy as the boy who grew up in Stillwater who played quarterback for Oklahoma State and has been coaching now for 17 seasons and pretty much will be coaching Oklahoma State as long as he desires. And they're okay with that. And what is beside me is that the game of football, coaching football, is not really even that innovative. I know I talk about how uncreative Mike Gundy and Casey Dunn are. Their lack of innovation, I believe, handicaps a lot of their players. But the game of coaching football is not innovative for most. Where do you think all of this window dressing, pre-snap motions, all of this stuff in the NFL came from. There was one dude, Mike Gundy. I mean, not Mike Gundy, uh, Sean McVay, sorry. Sean McVay and then the combination of Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy over in Kansas City. What you see Cliff Kingsbury doing with Arizona, what you see Kyle Shanahan doing with San Francisco, and what you see a lot of these funky, gimmicky-looking offenses in the NFL – They have copied Sean McVay. That is the game of coaching football. It is a copycat. It um, is a copycat industry. That's what I was looking for. It is a game of copycat. And who can copy somebody better? And in the case of the Oklahoma State Cowboys and Mike Gunning and Casey Dunn, you have the best play caller in the nation not two hours away from you. And that would be Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma. The best play caller in the country who you see every single year, at least once, possibly twice this year, is right down the road, and you can't take one thing out of his playbook. And then when you try to get gimmicky, In the game against Texas, you call two funky-looking plays in a row. In what world does this make any sense? You can't even be innovative correctly. And look, I'm not saying Mike Gundy is not a good motivator. I'm not saying Mike Gundy cannot connect with players. He's doing it a lot better over the course of the back end of last year into this year. You see him dancing in the locker rooms after wins. Like, you know, there are things that Mike Gundy does well. I'm not saying he's a bad coach, but you have to innovate. Carmelo Anthony 
is going to make it in the NBA, at least for this year, and we'll see at, in the coming years going forward. LeBron James has been as dominant a player as he's been. Russell Westbrook seems like this might work with Oklahoma City because they are constantly innovating their game to keep up with the times. And the sport of basketball, playing it at least, is not a copycat thing. This is, this is something these guys have to decide to do on their own. The industry of coaching football is as copycat as any industry gets. And you that, that requires no work whatsoever. You just see what this guy's doing, implement it in practice, and, and we see it on TV in the games on Saturdays. How do you not do that? And the reason why is because everybody around here, I guess, is okay with starting every single season 4-0, 5-0, in this case 6-0, which hasn't happened since 2011, or two, and then losing. That that's that's why this is that's why Mike Gunny is going to stick around, and that's why this sort of these sort of shenanigans are just going to keep happening. And the question I I end up asking myself is, what took so long for this to happen? You have to wonder what took so, what took so long for this to happen. And in operating this football team like this, has wasted a fantastic defense and it's worn the defense down. You have wasted a defense, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say this, too. You have wasted the talents of Spencer Sanders. Period. And I'll leave, I'll leave with this. To people who think I just don't know enough about football and, like, and think that you should run elaborate pass plays every play, no. I still am a proponent of establishing the run. But <laughs> the most gimmicky coach, coaches in the National Football League are Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan. They see each other twice a year. Each of them are stealing the other's plays perpetually. And you know what they both do? They establish the run and run all of their gimmicks and all of their window dressing and all of their trickery off of it. And if you're Mike Gundy, Lincoln Riley, right down the road, is your Sean McVay. Just go get something from him. Just don't be so predictable. And this team had the making of a team that is a top eight team in the country. It could be. But they do not have a top ten coaching staff and coaching philosophy in the country. And that is what's different. And you have to wonder, what took this so long? All right, back to the NBA. And the NBA season is young. Most teams have only played about three games. There's only one team in the Western Conference that is 3-0. As I record today on Monday, October 26th. And that is the Golden State Warriors. They have not, and this started on opening night when they knocked off the Los Angeles Lakers. Steph Curry is still going bananas. He's, you know, in, 
he's now in his mid-30s. By the way, he will continue to adapt his game so that he can do this for as long as he can. Andrew Wiggins has adapted his game. He is playing remarkably better defense than he ever has in his entire life. I don't know what it is between that transition between Minnesota and and Golden State, but Steve Kerr has gotten something out of Andrew Wiggins that no coach, not even Tom Thibodeau, got out of him in Minnesota. You know, Kevon Looney has given us a lot of improvement. Draymond Green's game just looks different from year to year to year, depending on what's needed from him. I'm going to say it today. If Klay Thompson comes back healthy, the Golden State Warriors are going to the NBA Finals. Because this team plays defense, and there is so much offensive firepower on this team consistently, consistently, that this team has the makings, even without Kevin Durant, to go to the NBA Finals. Steph Curry still plays defense. Draymond Green is perpetually in the race for Defensive Player of the Year. And they probably have the most improved player of, in the entire NBA. And that is this man, Jordan Poole. The things that you see this guy do, he can play as a Batman for the second unit. He can play as a Robin, as he is right now, to Steph Curry while they await the return of Klay Thompson, who has not played basketball in two full seasons. I really, really like Jordan Poole. He is a really, really good player. He can handle the ball. He can attack the rim. He can hit the entertaining electric shots from the logo that Steph Curry hits. You can see he like he studies Steph Curry. You can tell that these two have practiced together for two years. He's a guy that started in the G League, had two-way contracts, then worked his way up into being a staple on an NBA team. You know, they're going to they're gonna throw in guys like Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga eventually. And then wait till James Wiseman gets back? Because what Kevon Looney can't do, even though Kevon Looney is a good rebounder and he can alter shots, even though he's not going to block a whole lot of them, James Wiseman has a jump shot. He's not going to step out and shoot threes all the time, but he, can, he has a mid-range shot. So there's more floor spacing there and just a lot more that you can do with James Wiseman. But Kevon Looney is going to be a good six-man coming off the bench. And what the Warriors are doing, again, by the way, Andre Iguodala is back. And no, Andre Iguodala is not the same player as he was when he won finals MVP a few years ago. That's not him. But he can still be a valuable guy. He can still handle the ball. And speaking of that, that's that's another thing Golden State's doing, quite interestingly this year, is a lot of times they keep four guys on the floor that can all handle the ball. And that's going to work to preserve guys like Draymond Green and particularly Steph Curry. Because Steph Curry, I believe, is 34 now, or 33. Draymond Green is 32 or 31. These guys are getting up there. These are not the same guys, the same, you know, mid-20s guys that we saw when Golden State first flew onto the scene back in 2014. Times, times, are, times are, are rapidly, time is rapidly flying by. And Steve Kerr continues. Steve Kerr and Bob Myers and Joe Lacob, you know, the coach, general manager, and owner, respectively, continue to find ways to change and to adapt to keep this team afloat. And you saw without his running mate, Steph Curry, the NBA scoring champion from a year ago, 
got this team within one game of the playoffs. They almost knocked off the knocked off the Lakers for the seventh seed and then lost to Memphis for the eight seed playing game. But I think it was still a very good year for them, considering all the injuries they had. I think they overachieved. And with the with the exception of a couple years ago, I I don't remember a season where where Steve Kerr has underachieved as a coach. The Golden State Warriors are never bad. Are they always great? No. But you have to remember with a with Kevin Durant with a torn Achilles and Klay Thompson having just torn his ACL, the Warriors almost knocked off Kawhi Leonard and the Toronto Raptors. It was not a foregone conclusion that the Raptors were going to win the NBA Finals. Game six went down to the wire. You know, you saw Steph Curry, and I remember and I remember this picture vividly as I'm talking right now. Steph Curry and Draymond Green with Steve Kerr's arms around them. As the final seconds were ticking down, they realized they were going to lose the NBA Finals to Toronto. I can only imagine what they were saying. And I can only imagine them saying, we'll be back. And a couple years later, they're going to get Klay Thompson back. You know, barring another injury or setback to his recovery from the torn Achilles. They're going to get James Wiseman back. Andrew Wiggins is playing the best basketball of his life, even though the number's not going to reflect it. This guy, Jordan Poole, is one of the up-and-coming names in the NBA. And they had a great draft, in my opinion. And their roles are so perfectly nailed down. And if and the one wild card, <laughs> the one wild card in this whole thing is the second greatest shooter of all time. Pure shooter. The second, the second person to the greatest shooting backcourt the NBA has ever seen. He's the wild card. And if Klay Thompson doesn't come back as the all NBA defender that he was, at worst, Klay Thompson's going to be out there just shooting threes. Because guess what? A lot of Klay Thompson's game was not based on athleticism. He is he is extremely athletic. I get that. But in terms of his offensive game. Give Clay Thompson a scintilla of airspace. And that man is going to knock down shots. And with the way Golden State's offense works, with a lot of the cutters that they have, and the way that guys like Draymond, Steph Curry, Wiggins, Poole, Wiseman, Moody, Kaminga can attack the basket, you don't need Clay Thompson to do that. You tell Clay Thompson, hey, you stay out on the perimeter. You shoot your mid-range shots. You shoot your, you your three-point shots. And when you are ready and comfortable after coming off two of the probably most catastrophic injuries a basketball player can endure, when he's ready, then you tell him, you go dunk the ball again. And you go be that great defender that you once were. And who's to say Clay Thompson is not back to that level by the time the playoffs roll around? Oh, the Golden State Warriors are coming. I, I would not be surprised if Golden State ends up in the Western Conference Finals. And when that happens, that will be a really good day for the NBA because that means the leagues, all of the league's parity is back. The Warriors will be back. You know, Portland's still going to be there. Denver and Utah, the Clippers, the Lakers. Man, the, the Western Conference is going to be a gauntlet this year. 
It's going to be fun to watch. And then you go over to the Eastern Conference, Charlotte is 3-0. and Just knocked off the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn's going to be a story for the rest of the year. Philadelphia's going to be a story for the rest of the year, particularly as how this everything continues to develop with Ben Simmons. I'm not going to touch on the Ben Simmons situation today. But Milwaukee's there. Miami looks like they're going to be a really good team, even though hopefully Miami has fixed its problems with going on these long droughts of not scoring because that's always the one issue with Miami is that for some reason they go through long spells where they just can't score, even though they're always playing hard. You know, Indiana with Rick Carlisle as their coach now. Boston, the Knicks look like they're going to be a good team. Atlanta, you can't sleep on them. This is going to be one amazing NBA season. It really, really is. There's, there's going to be a lot. There's going to be a. It's going to be a good time with this NBA season. But like I just told you, I think the Golden State Warriors are back, and I think they're back to finals contention. And if Clay Thompson, if Clay Thompson comes back, the way we expect him to, Golden State's going to the NBA Finals. All right, that'll do it for me on the gray area. Apple Podcasts, Spotify is where you can find this. Also on SoundCloud. Happy Halloween, everybody. This is going to be a good week. Happy homecoming to all of my stu- all of my fellow students here at Oklahoma State University and the alumni as well. My name is Grayson Singleton. God bless. Keep cool. Go Pokes, and we will see you next week. 